Good morning, everybody. You know, this last week, I was reminded of a psalm in the Bible that says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. You know, in this ancient song that none other than King Solomon, even though he acted a fool sometimes, it was said that he's the wisest man that ever lived. Um, but he really captured this important truth for us to remember. We can make any kind of plan we want. We can even go about making sure that we have all our ducks in a row, that it's going to happen, it's going to go exactly as we plan, but in the end, the only good way to build or even rebuild is to pray and seek the Lord's vision and the Lord's help. At that point, our work will maybe amount to a, a bunch of sweat and a bunch of excitement, but, you know, if we don't seek the Lord's help and the Lord's vision, then it won't really secure our future. It won't hold up in the long term before needing to go get help from someone from somewhere. And so, as Solomon would suggest, why not go to the one person that the Bible claims is our source for everything we need for life and godliness? The truth is we need to go to the Lord to ask for his help to help us build the house, right? Now, as I mentioned earlier about the merger stuff, don't worry, I won't go through all that hairy business, but one of the reasons why I, I'm more quick to pause and just say, let's, let's wait a minute, let's, let's figure something out, is because uh, all these talks that we had even starting back at our annual conference business sessions in November, all of it was a bunch of talk. And we didn't start with prayer. And it wasn't until, oh, probably March or April that our conference superintendent said, you know what, we need to pray. Uh, this is a really big decision. There's a lot of division. Uh, even in our group of family of churches that we have here in the Northwest, there's a lot of opinions going around and we need to seek the Lord. And so it's my hope that as we move forward as a denomination, that we would seek the Lord first and let him establish our steps. And that would be my prayer for us as, as our own local church here on the corner of Laurel and Rhododendron. Now today we are kicking off a brand new series taking a pause away from Matthew. Uh, we'll get back to Matthew, don't worry. It'll stay there and, and we'll get there. But we're kicking off a new series where we're going to be exploring the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Of the three different types of writings in the Hebrew Scriptures, which are the law, the histories, and the writings, which also include all those poetry books that, you know, us pragmatic folk don't always like to go to, but they're there. Uh, so the law, the histories, and the writings, Nehemiah is, 
historical. It's a history. It's a short history about a really crucial time for God's people. Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians, and most of the people had been carried off into exile to Babylon. And from there, the Babylonians were eventually sacked by the Persians. Uh, And it was under the Persian Empire that we eventually start to see God's people returning to the Promised Land. So although this was an amazing move of God to restore the people, they returned to find the aftermath and the rubble and the ruins of their country. To say that things were in a bad way would be an understatement for them. And so what we're about to discover through this series is that people had the insurmountable task of trying to rebuild from the ruins. Rebuilding is a major theme of Nehemiah, and so we're going to call our series Rebuild uh, for the coming weeks. And so even though, you know, the circumstances are categorically different, uh, we're not literally building a wall uh, around our church building. We don't have, you know, a bunch of rubble around us to try to rebuild some kind of wall like these people did. The truth is we are standing at a moment in the life of our church where I believe there's a lot of good ahead for us. God's not done with us yet. And I believe that we need to rebuild, as it were. The pandemic really stopped a lot of momentum that we had going for us and we were experiencing as a church. And now that we are on the other side of all those shutdowns, I'm believing for no more, but you know, here we go. We're on the other side of a lot of those shutdowns. It's time for us, you and me, to see with fresh eyes, roll up our sleeves, and begin the process of rebuilding. But before we get started, the plan is to read what God has to say through the book of Nehemiah about what to do, how to do it, and ultimately what that will mean for us going forward. And so the title for today's message is Praying Through the Problem. Praying Through the Problem. Our main passage is going to be none other than Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 11. And the big idea that we're going to be exploring together this morning is that God is always true to his people. God is always true to his people. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Nehemiah 1. I'll be reading from the New International Version today, but whatever version that you have in your hands is fine. Unfortunately, I don't have a digital copy to throw up on the screen here, but, um, you know, God's word doesn't return void. And so if you don't have a copy in front of you, just close your eyes and listen. And I believe God has something for you here today. Nehemiah 1, picking up in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant 
that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cup-bearer to the king. Friends, this is the word of the Lord recorded by Nehemiah. And the first observation I see in our passage is family and gathering facts. Family and gathering facts. So the book kicks off by giving us a lot of details, including some names, that are mentioned. These people give shape to the historical account in a really unique way. First is the man named Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. The name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And his father's name means wait for God. Nehemiah's brother's uh, Hanani's name comes from the Hebrew word that means to show favor or to be gracious to. Even God's own personal name, Yahweh, is mentioned here in the passage, which is signaled by the use of the word Lord in all capital letters in the English translation. Uh, God's name literally means that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. God is so faithful, and the Bible always leads us to the place of seeing that he will never let us down, like we sung a little bit ago. No matter what, God does not let us down. God is always true. Now, in the Bible, names are important because they actually describe the person's character. At this point in the history 
of Israel, I always find it interesting what people's names mean because it can often give us a clue into what they're like and what we can expect from them in their action. And, you know, it usually helps the histories come alive in a way that's lost to us in the present day. Kind of like the old Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. Uh, he reaches the end of the song and he says, and when I have a boy, I think I'll name him Bill or George or Frank, anything but Sue. You know, even though the name Sue is what gave him the rough and tumble grit that, you know, led him through life, right? Now, in today's world, though, if we were to name a boy Sue, you might assume that people were trying to make some kind of social or political statement, right? There, there might be a disconnect between names now of days. But the Lord comforts, wait for God, show favor, be gracious. It looks like they could describe, those names could describe a family who was devout to God, or at least they used to be. And the names have been passed down from generation to generation, and that ultimately reminds us about God's character, that he is our comforter, that he is, you know, worth the wait. He's, uh, he's the one we wait for, and we expect for him to come through. He's faithful. The Lord is a gracious God, and he's worthy of our trust. God makes promises, and he keeps them. Nehemiah's family had been a part of the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C., and 70 years later, they, you know, over time, they'd gotten jobs, they built homes, they found a new life and a new place. And through the leadership of a priest named Ezra, many of God's people returned to the land and others stayed behind. Some of Nehemiah's family were probably part of the group that went back either in that first wave in 516 uh, or maybe in a couple of other waves of return, returning exiles. But then others still stayed behind because they had built a life there in Persia. So Nehemiah gives us some details, though, that, uh, you know, that set up the, the picture of the story, right? Where it all began. It was in the month of Kislev. We all know what that is, right? <laughs> uh, well, I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Kislev in Hebrew and in that Israeli culture, uh, that would kind of correspond to our middle of November to the middle of December. That's kind of, you know, the season that we're looking at. Um, even though Persia is in the Middle East, you know, kind of geographically, uh, it probably, what is that, latitude along that line, it would probably be, you know, some high desert, but then there were also some it would be kind of a little bit more like the climate we have here in a lot of ways, except for that we're on the coast. But anyway, I digress. So it's in the middle of November, middle of December. It might be cold at this point, right? This is in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes I of Persia, uh, which would set the time of this book at about 445 B.C., that's 71 years after the first group of Jews returned to the promised land. And it was around this time that Nehemiah's brothers Hanani and some other people came to visit. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I check in with my folks in Portland, 
Uh, if it's either in person or by phone, uh, if it's going to be a long talk at all, we usually get around to me asking the question, hey, how is so-and-so doing? Um, and catching up on the condition of my family. So let's get the details. Let's gather the facts about the state of the family. That's what Nehemiah is doing in verses 1 through 3. The facts he's most interested in could be summed up in two categories. The first is, how is the Jewish remnant who survived the exile? How are they doing? How are the people? And number two, what is Jerusalem like? Um, it's quite possible that Nehemiah was born in exile, uh, just within the time frame that we're looking at here. Um, Nehemiah's connection with the promised land was 141 years removed from seeing the great city. And so his outlook is really wrapped up in the answers to those two questions, which we learn that the remnant were in trouble, they were disgraced, and this was because the walls had been demolished at the Babylonian invasion, and they were still in ruin, and that left the city unprotected, vulnerable, and exposed to dangers from attack. The great thing about having family and gathering the facts is that once you have a general idea of what things are really like, it's in that place that you can really know how to respond. God is always true to his people, and that's why they ended up in the promised land in the first place. That's also why they ended up in exile and returning there again. God's faithfulness is also why we see this moment in Nehemiah's story. So, what happened next? In verse 4 it said, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This shows me another important factor in the story of rebuilding uh, is that we need to process our emotions. We need to process our emotions. When Nehemiah heard the news, he didn't come at it from a place of thinking that he had all the answers, you know, saying things like, well, what the people in Jerusalem really need to do is X, Y, Z, and then everything will be good. He didn't complain about this news. He didn't condemn his out-of-town guests, saying things like, well, why didn't you do something about it? Nehemiah is a great example of what we should do when we are faced with a major problem in life. He went through a time of processing his emotions, which in this case was his grief over the state of the people and the city. This year, and even the last couple of years in the pandemic have been a full-on change, uh, you know, full of change, stress, and even some loss for a lot of us. People have moved, spouses have separated or even divorced, families have been divided over all hosts of issues. Uh, there's some of us who have experienced the death of a loved one or some of us who have you know, these changes and more have happened and we were just, you know, passive participants in it. We were bystanders uh, because of one reason or another. The question is, are we processing through those emotions? 
or are we living in denial? Or worse yet, are we letting our emotions consume us to the point of wrecking us even further? Friends, you are a human being made in the image of God, and God gave you emotions. And when you process through those emotions, that is going to lead you to a better place of understanding and even a place of being healed and restored, coming out on the other side stronger than before. So how do we process through emotions? Uh, a couple of things to take note of. The first step is to acknowledge what the emotion is. Acknowledge what the emotion is. What are you feeling? It's not wrong to feel something. In case you needed to hear that this morning, it's okay to feel. We don't have to be stoic all the time. It's okay to feel. Your emotions are just the natural way your bodies, especially your mental capacity, responds to something. It's okay to feel because once you've identified that you're feeling that way, that's when those details are out in the open and you can actually deal with what's happening. We have to be honest about our emotions in order to really deal with them. The second step in that process is to own your emotion. To own your emotion. Own what's yours and what's not. This is where you move from just talking about it or even just feeling those feelings to actually owning your part of those feelings. When processing through those emotions, we can't shift the blame to somebody else for how you are feeling, how I'm feeling. Since we're the only ones who are internalizing these feelings and maybe even expressing our feelings, we have to own what that feeling is telling us about that situation. The third step is to accept the emotion. Accept the emotion. You've identified it. You've gotten real about the fact that, yep, I'm feeling this way. This is what it's telling me about where I'm at with what I'm feeling. And this is the step. Acceptance is the step where we, we accept the emotions for what they are. Our emotions are not absolute truth. And they only become objective reality when we start to act on them in the world. To accept the emotion means to recognize that this is what I'm feeling, this is why I'm feeling it, and I'm actually feeling it, and to then realize that it does not have to necessarily define my reality. And the fourth and final step is to give it away. Give away the emotion. This is the end of the process, the end of the line. This is the step where we find some conclusion to the conflict that we're feeling, through practicing things like forgiveness, reconciliation, or release. And some questions that help us release that emotion and to move on in life are, number one, is what I'm getting emotional about something that's actually happening right now? Or is it just something that I'm feeling about some distant memory that I'm being reminded about now? Another question would be, if it's something that is in the past, is it something that we released before, but we find ourselves going and picking it back up again? If so, then it's possible that we 
did not really accept and own our emotions earlier on in the process, and we have to go back and back, back to those steps and start to walk through that. That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of times in our lives where we can feel guilt and shame over sin that was already dealt with in the past, things that, you know, maybe wrongs that we did or wrongs that were done to us, and we feel that in the present, and so in order to release them, we have to identify, is that a now thing or was it a then thing? And has that actually been dealt with? Do I need to go back and try to work through those steps again? Third, and this is kind of the third group of questions to consider, it brings us to the question of, is that a place of sin? With our feelings, are we in a place where we need to go to God to forgive us and heal us of, you know, those damages that sin has done to our life. In order that we can move on from that place of emotion, we need God to help us, to give it away so that we're free to go forward without having to feel like we're just getting stuck in the process on a loop. Now, that was a lot of information to cover. Thank you for bearing with me. That's a, you know, a process that uh, I was led through in a leadership de development thing. So let's filter Nehemiah's experience and see if we can see him processing through his emotions in the passage. Step one, he acknowledged, uh, he heard the information, it came to him, and his body naturally responded. He sat down and wept. He was overcome with emotion. All his hopes and expectations of news from the promised land were dashed by the reality of what was, and this caused him to feel sad. Step two, he owned his emotions. It was his sadness at the news that caused him to sit down and weep. Nehemiah practiced solitude in the aftermath of his brother's words. Step three, he accepted the emotions and his solitude. He fasted. He took a posture of being physically empty in that place of sadness. Instead of just trying to self-medicate through filling his life with all manner of substances or distractions, he practiced fasting so that he could become laser-focused on processing through this emotion. And finally, the fourth step, giving it away, is seen in how Nehemiah went on to pray to God. Processing through his emotions, ultimately he looked to God for help and resolution to go forward. He didn't just get with his brothers and talk it through, you know, solving all the world's problems. Instead, he took his emotion to God in prayer because God is always true to his people. And when Nehemiah's heart was overwhelmed, he practiced solitude and fasting and prayer. And it would be from that place that he would come out stronger and able to face the issue head on and begin the process of rebuilding going forward. All right, third and final thing I see Nehemiah doing is that he participates through prayer and waiting. He participates through prayer and waiting. The rest of the chapter, it has a prayer that Nehemiah wrote out to God. Before we can move on to the, the point of rebuilding, whether it's for ourselves, for our church, for our family, for where, you know, whatever area we have had loss in, we need to go to God in prayer. 
we may recognize that there's a problem, that something needs to happen, but we need to have God's wisdom and direction. Nehemiah was a person of prayer. And throughout the book, we see that Nehemiah's default response any time he faces any kind of opposition or problem of any kind is to go to the Lord in prayer. Nehemiah prays through the problem because the truth is when you want to and need to rebuild, prayer is absolutely essential to that work. Because like Solomon wrote in the Psalms, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so in Nehemiah's prayer, he follows a similar pattern uh, that a lot of believers use today. People go by different things, but it's usually a, a similar acronym, uh, acrostic. Uh, I like to call it the pray pattern. Um, and we see it in Nehemiah 1. So first he praises God, P for praise. Uh, he praises God for who he is and what he's done. He recognizes you know, God, you are the Lord in heaven and, and you have rescued and redeemed your people. He reflects and he repents of the things in life that fall short of God's holiness. By literally saying in which verse is it? In verse six, he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He confesses, he repents of that. Then he goes on to ask God. He brings his requests to him. A for ask. When you face a problem, you go to God and you ask him for help. And the last letter, Y, for yield. We, we yield to his will and his timing. There's about a four-month gap between the time that Nehemiah first heard this news from his brothers that Jerusalem was in ruin and that the people were discouraged to when we see Nehemiah take his problem to King Artaxerxes. That means that Nehemiah was in deep prayer for about four months leading up to the action, which suggests to me that through all that time of prayer and fasting, Nehemiah was waiting on the Lord to give the green light to move forward because God is always true to his people. And when we wait on the Lord, he will place us on the right path. And so to conclude, the challenge I want to give you and me today is to pray. We are facing a season where we need to rebuild. There's no doubt about that. Definitely as a church, we need to do it. And maybe for you individually, and for me individually, maybe we need to personally rebuild. And the challenge is not to just go about trying to fix the problems that we're facing. Instead, we kind of follow the pattern like Nehemiah shows us. Gather the facts, process through your emotions, and participate through prayer and waiting the main action that we're called to in Nehemiah 1 is to pray. So if we are to rebuild, let's start right. Amen? Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.